Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. There's a lot of great resources there that are free and will help you grow closer to God and help you connect with the church. Right now, let's go to our lead pastor, Chris Figueretti, for this week's message. Well, welcome everybody. Uh, We are in our series on Mark. We're going to be in Mark chapter 13 today. So if you want to open up there, you can follow along. That would be really great. We're going through the story and the life of Jesus. And what we're looking at today is what's called the Olivet Discourse. It's found in Mark chapter 13. And Jesus and his disciples, for almost all of it, all but two verses, are sitting and having a conversation, or really Jesus is, is, is laying some things out for them on the Mount of Olives, looking over across the valley over into Jerusalem and look with the temple in the background, checking that out. Now, this is a bit of a a different direction for Jesus and a different direction for Mark, literally, or literarily, if that's a word. Uh, He kind of changes his writing style here. Um, Now, we're going to hit a topic that it's kind of, there, there are a lot of different opinions about this topic. Let me put it that way. Christians agree about some very specific and important things. Like we all agree that, that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross. So we're saved by grace through faith in Christ and that, and that is revealed through the scriptures. God reveals that plan for us in the scriptures, and it's for his glory. We agree on that. And there are a lot of other things that Christians agree on. But there are things that Christians have disagreements about. And hopefully we can disagree without being disagreeable. But there are what I call debatable topics. Things like um, the, the, the debate between predestination and free will. You know, there are some Christians who, and, and, and very, you know, people who love Jesus, who study the scriptures, scholars uh, with, you know, I think their heart's in the right place, but come down on different sides of that issue. Predestination is the idea that God controls every decision we make along the way, and free will is we, ha- we get to decide what we're going to do along the way. And as we look at scriptures, as I look at scripture, I see support for both. It's, it's somehow a mix of the two that don't seem like they're going to mix together, but it's a debatable topic. It's not a salvation issue. And quite frankly, it doesn't change the way that we follow Jesus or the way that we live. Baptism is another one of those issues. Some Christians believe that we we need to be immersed in water. That's what we subscribe to here at the Vineyard. Others believe you can sprinkle. Some believe babies need to be baptized. Others believe that adults only should be baptized. There there are these topics that that good, honest, good-hearted people with, uh, with good theological study look at and come down on different sides. And that is just reality and truth because the scripture isn't completely crystal clear on these. And now usually there's two sides, right? Sometimes there's three or four sides to the argument different. On the, on the issue that we're looking at today that Jesus addresses today, there are between 25 and 27 different thoughts or uh, philosophies or theories about what that looks like. And what we're looking at today is the is what people sometimes call the end times. It's the end of the world as we know it. What's that going to look like? Theologians call this eschatology, which literally means last things. And like I said, they're between 25 
and 30 different opinions that people have about what this looks like. Because some things in, in Scripture are not crystal clear. Sometimes God gives us a glimpse into something, but not totally clear revelation of this is exactly how this is going to look or happen or whatever. The Apostle Paul said famously, we see now like we're looking through a, 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 um, a glass and it's a foggy glass, but then we'll see like we're going to be face to face with God because we will be. And so when we handle these topics, it's so important that we handle them humbly. Uh, I believe God gave us these debatable issues, these things in Scripture that aren't 100% clear, to teach us to love one another. Again, I, I think I shared this a week or two ago. The Apostle Paul said that you can fathom all the mysteries of, the, of, of Scripture, and, and, but if you don't have love, it doesn't mean anything. Jesus commanded us, above all things, to love one another. And so when we come down and we have a disagreement about a theological topic, topic, we are still commanded to love one another. And this is kind of a test. Can we do that? And I just, you know, historically, sometimes Christians have been really bad at doing that, but we're going to do that here today. One thing you're going to have to get comfortable with is that God is okay with some mystery. He's okay with some gray area. Now, I know you, those of you with black and white personalities aren't okay with gray area, but God seems to be. Now, I'm sure he's clear on it, but he's okay with us living in some gray. There are black and white issues in Scripture that are crystal clear, moral issues like love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's absolutely crystal clear. Last week, we covered that God wants us to be generous. There's no ambiguity about that. He wants us to worship Him and Him alone. There's clear don'ts in the Scripture. Don't worship idols. Don't have sex outside of marriage. Those are clear don'ts. But then there are things that are not covered in Scripture, things that aren't all that clear. When I was growing up, the big debate, I was, I was going to a traditional church here in Wheeling, uh, and there was a new church that had started up. It was, in fact, the, the, the traditional churches kind of said it was a cult. It was called the Vineyard. And, uh, and, and the reason it was a cult is because they had a rock and roll band in church, and the devil was in that rock and roll music, you know, and it couldn't be trusted. Now, what they didn't realize that, is that in the 1600s, the same debate went on about bringing organs into church because up to that point it was all Gregorian chants and and so you know that's not spelled out in, in the scripture and so we can have different opinions about that and I ended up at the vineyard absolutely another debatable topic that we have covered in this series is the issue of alcohol different Christians come down on different sides on the topic of of alcohol it's not a hundred percent crystal clear that's okay I love this state. I love this statement. It was uh, it's attributed to Augustine, but I don't think it actually was Augustine. I think it was a German theologian in the in the uh, 16th century who said this. He said, "In the essentials, unity. In those things that are crystal clear, we have unity. In the non-essentials, we have liberty." In the things that aren't crystal clear in Scripture, we have the liberty to have our different opinions. And then he said, "In all things, charity." Love covers all of it. At the end of the day, we treat each other with compassion, love, and acceptance, even if we disagree on the non-essential issues. 
You know, there are doctrinal issues that are clear too, like Jesus is the Son of God, God, Jesus was fully God and fully human. There are clear falsehoods, like Jesus was married, he was not, or he wants everybody to drive a Mercedes Benz, you know, the whole prosperity gospel. That is not true. And then there are doctrinal issues that are not so clear. More genuine Christians and theologians disagree, like on the in the end times eschatology uh, realm of uh, the tribulation. There are, there are some theologians who believe there's a, that one of the concepts in eschatology is this period of suffering. And some theologians, it's called the tribulation, and some, some theologians believe that, that the Christians will be removed from the world before the tribulation, and we won't have to go through that. Others believe that the Christians will be removed in the middle of the tribulation, and some believe that Christ, the Christians will stay for the whole thing and have to endure the whole tribulation. They're called pre-tribbers, the before, mid-tribbers, and post-tribbers, right? And they have very strong opinions about this. Uh, and in fact, when I, again, when I was growing up, this was so hotly debated, it was such a hot topic that the churches split over this. Now, I always joke around and say that I'm a pan-tribber, which means I believe it all pans out in the end, and I don't know which way that's going to go. I, I, you know, I could pick one, but I'd probably be wrong. But it's not a salvation issue. It's not one of the essentials, and you can have an opinion on that, and it could be different from my opinion. We can still be brothers and sisters, and we can still walk with God and, walk, and do life together and uh, help people find and follow God. All right, the Olivet Discourse. Jesus kind of pivots in what he is doing with his disciples. He's talking specifically to his disciples, not the crowd. And, and, and this is written in what is called an apocalyptic literature style. It's different than everything else. It's not poetic. There's some poetry in the Bible. There's prose, story in the Bible. And this is apocalyptic literature. We see it primarily in the book of Daniel. We see it here in the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13, Matthew 24. We also see it in the book of Revelation. It is not a literal style. It is not, this says this, so this means that. There's a lot of symbolism, and there is a lot of diving deep to figure out what that symbolism means, and a lot of times we get that wrong. You know, so you can't say, well, you know, Jesus said this was going to happen. I saw that, so that means he's coming back. No, you got, you've got to have some understanding, and you're still probably not going to get it right. That's why there are 25-plus different interpretations of how the end times are going to roll out. Okay? So... Apocalyptic literature, in some ways, would be like finding a text message a thousand years from now and understanding what it said. Okay, so if I find, it, 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 I could find a text message today and have a hard time understanding what it says. But you know, I mean, it, it, it's like it's a whole nother language, right? So if if a thousand years from now I found this text message that said F W I W bra, I M H O G slash F. C-R-A-Y-L-O-L. What does that mean? Well, I, actually, if I hadn't looked it up, I wouldn't know what it means today, but a thousand years from now, absolutely no idea what that means. Here's what this means. Let me interpret this for you. F-W-I-W, for what it's worth. For what it's worth, bra, brother or friend. 
I-M-H-O, in my humble opinion. So for what it's worth, brother, in my humble opinion, G slash F, your girlfriend, C-R-A-Y, is nuts, crazy. And then dash L-O-L means nervous laugh tacked on to the end to alleviate tension and a sense of judgment. That's what that, so as we read apocalyptic literature, it's a little, it's a little like that. Theologian D.A. Carson, who is an evangelical theologian, Bible teacher, teaches at seminaries, before he will teach through the Olivet Discourse or the book of Revelation, he has his students read over 300 pages on apocalyptic literature. He then teaches a 32-week course on it, and then they dive in. Because you have it's not like just reading something and going, oh, this is what this means. There's more to it. And, and that's where we get into trouble, isn't it? That's what we, we, we get into trouble when we kind of get it. Get it. Over the last 2,000 years, there have been two, over 2,000 public declarations of when the end of the world is going to come. And every one of them has been wrong. My favorite is the, the book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. Yeah, we missed that one. When I was in, in, in 1999, uh, New Year's Eve, we were all getting ready for Y2K. If you were alive back then, you remember this. But uh, the whole computer system had been built on a, a computer code that had a two-digit date. So... Uh, nobody thought ahead that we were going to flip over into the next millennium. And so they just had, you know, uh, whenever they started, you know, 50, 51, 52, 53. And so when it gets to 99, which 1999, it flips over to 00, everybody thought that the entire computer network around the world was going to shut down and all the nuclear uh, warheads were going to be shot off into the, into the air and we were all going to die and Jesus was going to come back. It was the end and there were a lot of churches that got on board with this. And so we were, we were at... Um, at this cabin in the mountains, and it was a solar-powered cabin off the grid, but it did have a satellite dish. So we were watching Dick Clark uh, at, at midnight, and they counted down. So we would never know because we were in the you know we were in the middle of nowhere, and, and so we watched it count down, and I totally expected the the screen to go dead at midnight and it counted down zero, and the ball came down, and then people were kissing each other and you know champagne, and I'm like well, I guess it didn't happen. You know, they got that one wrong too. You know, in 2012, it was, I remember it was December 21st, 2012 was, he got a lot of press. Like there were all these stories going on about how that was when Jesus was going to come back. It was the end of the world. And um, we decided to capitalize on some of the hype that was going on. We did a sermon series called It's the End of the World as We Know. It was kind of a kind of a tip of the hat to REM. But anyway, uh, I think we actually played REM as the walk-on music. But the last sermon was on the 23rd of December, and we pre-wrote the sermon. It was, we're still here, now what? Now, if I thought it was actually going to end on the 21st, I wouldn't have spent the extra energy writing that sermon. But we knew it wasn't because somebody called it. Not long after that, there's a guy driving around the country in a Prius with a with a graphics wrap on it saying the end of the world was coming May 25th. And of course, we drove right past May 25th. One of the things I know is when people start calling dates, they're wrong. 
you know, unless you call every day and then you, you might get it right eventually, but it's been 2,000 years. So the question is, if there's, all, if there's all this contention around this, if people were trying to call dates and getting them wrong, why did Jesus spend all this time talking about it? Well, that's what I want to look at, and hopefully we can answer that by the end of the message today. Let's read verse 1. Mark chapter 13, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. They're walking out of the temple. Herod's temple was one of the marvels of the world. It was amazing. They had stones. They had cut stone out of a limestone quarry somewhere that were 30 feet long, 18 feet high, and 10 feet wide. They weighed over 50 tons, and they had no hydraulics or heavy equipment or anything to get them there, and they didn't cut them on the mountain itself. They came from somewhere else. It was an amazing, magnificent, huge temple. And so the disciples pointed out, and you know, they've been going there their whole life, but it's one of those moments like, look how big these rocks are. Jesus says to them, this. He says, do you see these great buildings? Jesus replied, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now, I think the disciples at that point are like, okay, Jesus, let's get out of here. Because Jesus is saying, he's standing next to the national symbol, the national religious symbol, and he's saying, this thing's coming down. Be kind of like me standing next to the White House going, see that? coming down. There won't be, it won't be, you know, it's a terroristic threat in one, in one sense, part of why Jesus was crucified. Now, as he goes on, it says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. So we go from the scene at the temple, they walk down through town, down into the valley, across and up onto the Mount of Olives, which is on the other side, looking back at the temple. And it says, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, let's have a private conversation about this. No more of this ixnay on the whole temple A coming down A. Um, we're going to have a private conversation about it. Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? So they asked Jesus two questions, when and how. And Jesus spends the whole chapter answering neither of those questions. You know, if you, if you think back as we've read through the book of Mark and as you read the Gospels, Jesus rarely answers a question straight on. He'll, he'll answer with a question or he'll ask or he'll answer in a completely different direction that makes you think and helps you to ask a better question. And I think that's what Jesus was doing here. Now, the question that I, I come to over and over again as I've been wrestling with this passage is why would Jesus spend one sixteenth, a whole chapter of the book of Mark talking about end times stuff? Why? And again, hope by the time we get to the end, we'll have an answer for that. In verse five, Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. This is apocalyptic language. They would have been familiar with this, some of this language from the book of Daniel. It's totally apocalyptic. You must be on your guard, 
he goes on, you will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but it's the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now he goes on there and he, he breaks some things down, but we're going to jump down to verse 32 where he says this, because what he does is, and the theologians will debate whether he is talking about something that has happened and then something that is going to happen, um, whether some of the things he said at first happened in 70 AD when the temple was torn down by the Romans. Some theologians, theologians believe yes, other theologians believe no. Um, there's conversation about that. So, but he does eventually get to a part towards the end where he's talking about the end and about his return and what the end of the world looks like. And then he says this in verse 32, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. Be on guard, he says. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you I say to everyone, watch. Jesus goes into this parable of, a, of a, a wealthy estate owner leaving and putting his servants in charge of the estate and says, I'll be back. And an estate owner, a wealthy estate owner might go away for a month or two months or years, depending on where they're traveling to you. And you're just not going to know when he's coming back, whether it's the day, the middle of the night, whatever. They didn't have cell phones, right? There was no warning. He'd just show up. Don't be caught off guard. Be found faithful. And this is a theme for Jesus. He hits it again and again. So, with all of that said, what can we know? What can we know? Well, I want to start with what we don't know. What don't we know about the end of times? What don't we know? And the first thing that we don't know is we don't know when. We don't know when it's going to happen. In Matthew uh, 24, verse 36, Jesus said, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And then in verse 42, he says, therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. We don't know. When people start naming dates and saying this is going to happen, usually it's in September sometime because that's when Rosh Hashanah is and everybody thinks that Jesus is coming back at Rosh Hashanah, which he might, that's a Jewish holiday, he might, but every September we kind of get messages that, oh, it's going to be this year. Um, maybe, maybe not. We don't know. Now, Jesus made it clear, and if you read the rest of this passage, I hope you do, he made it clear we can know the season, we can read the signs of the times, but we're not going to know when or the day or, or even probably the year, in my opinion. I think, I think Jesus shared some of this because he wants us to be generally aware 
of the end and, 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 and the season and the signs, but he doesn't want us to waste a bunch of time trying to figure out something that even he and the angels don't know. Now, the, the question that begs then is, are we living in that season now? And I will say this, Christians since Jesus left have thought we have been living in that season, every generation. And so are we living in that, gener- or in that season now? I don't know. I don't know. Jesus said he'll come like a thief in the night. Thief in the night doesn't give us warning. I don't know. We can look at the signs of this, the times and, and see what's going on. I, you know, I, I think of what's going on with, um, with COVID and all that. And is the vaccine passport the mark of the beast? Some people are, you know, that we read about in the book of Revelation. It has some, you know, it has some leanings in that direction, but I don't know. And you don't know either. Be aware. And then Jesus said, be watchful, be about my business. I don't know if this is the the season or not. As I look at world history over the last 2,000 years, there's been some crazy things, much crazier than we're dealing with today that have unfolded. And so maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Either way, it doesn't change how we should live now. We should be faithful. Second thing we don't know, is we don't know how. Theologians will, will argue, some, some will argue that people will disappear, just uh, others that they'll be taken up into the air. Some, some uh, will argue that there's going to be a thousand-year reign of Christ, and then there's the thousand-year tribulation. We don't know. There's, and nobody quite knows 20, 25 to 30 different opinions on that. We don't know. It's okay to have an opinion. It's okay to study all of that. But it's not okay to divide ourselves over our opinion because we don't know. So what do we know then? What do we know about the end times? Well, the first thing we do know is that Jesus is coming back. He made that clear. Jesus said, I'm coming back, and he's coming back in majesty. He's not coming back as the slain lamb of God. He is coming back as the roaring lion of Judah, and he is going to, he's going to be large and in charge. Now, I think we oftentimes live like we forget this. We oftentimes live like, well, he hasn't come back yet, so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna live for here and now and rather than for, for his return. And Jesus, this is where Jesus says, don't grow weary, don't be caught asleep, be watchful. Um, we don't wanna forget the fact that he's coming back. Second thing, that we know is that when he does come back, all people will be judged. All people will be judged. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Revelation 20 Verse 11 says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And, the de- and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. 
Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Talk about apocalyptic literature. You know, there, there are a lot of little nuances in there that we could pull apart, but one thing that is not nuanced and is completely clear is that we will stand before Christ in judgment. Every one of us, for what we've done and how we've lived. I think for a lot of, time, a lot of times, Christians don't think, we don't remember that. Now, we will be forgiven. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Apostle Paul said this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. He made Jesus to be sin for us. Your sin was placed on him on the cross so that it would be paid for and you could be forgiven. And he goes on, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When God looks at us through Christ, he sees his righteousness, not our sin. But that doesn't mean we will not be judged and found wanting. How you live now matters. Third thing we know about the end is that God will establish his kingdom here on earth. He will establish his kingdom here on earth. You know, the idea of of heaven being up in the clouds with angels and halos playing harps and all that, that's very much a Greek perspective on the afterlife. The biblical perspective is that in the end, God is bringing heaven to earth. He is going to make a new heaven and a new Jerusalem, and, and he is going to heal our land, and he is going to redeem the earth, and he is going to make it all good again. And there will be no more death or suffering or pain and all the effects of sin that have plagued this planet. His kingdom will be here on earth. We know that. So that's what we do know, and that's what we don't know. But back to the original question, why this passage? Why did Jesus spend one-sixteenth of the book of Mark addressing this? And I've got a few things. I think he was giving us some perspective. The first one is this. He wants us to live as the temple of the Holy Spirit. As he points to the temple and says, this thing's coming down. It's coming down. Jesus, the, some, of, some of the Jewish people worship the temple rather than God. And as we talked about in previous week, idols will wreck your relationship with God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's not going to happen through the temple. It's going to happen through me. The temple's time is done. Temple worship was obsolete. A new age was dawning. When Jesus was crucified, the veil of the temple that separated the Holy of Holies where the presence of God was from from everyone else, it tore from top to bottom in an earthquake and sim symbolizing that God just left the building. The Holy Spirit was out. And then at Pentecost, he, the Spirit comes and lives in the hearts of Jesus' followers and has ever since. But this idea of the Spirit coming and living inside of us, it's a new thing. There's a new temple, and I don't think, and Jesus wants us to remember that. He declared that religion was over and a relationship with God just began. In 1 Corinthians 16, 19, 
It says this, do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I think he's addressing the issue of the temple and and the close of that age and the beginning of this new age of the Spirit. And he wants us to remember and to live as temples of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, he wants to live at, wants us to live at peace with biblical tensions. I think Jesus is not surprised 2,000 years later that this is a debated passage, that there are different opinions about it. And there are many things, many topics in Scripture that, that we live in a tension between understandings. You know, the, the, the kingdom of God has come as the Spirit of God has come at Pentecost. The kingdom of God is in us and is among us and it's with us. And yet the fullness of the kingdom of God is not yet here. We live in a tension between the already kingdom of God and the not yet kingdom of God. Jesus, when he was, was asked what it meant to, to be a neighbor, his, he gave the story of the Good Samaritan. And this guy comes and he finds a, an enemy on the ground beaten up and naked and, and dying and he cares for his wounds and he puts him on his donkey and he takes him to an inn and he, he makes sure he gets the medicine that he needs and he pays for it all and Jesus is like, that's what it looks like to follow me. And then in the next scene, he's sitting in Martha, Mary and Lazarus's living room and Martha's in the kitchen serving just like Jesus said. And Mary is sitting at his feet just listening. Martha comes out and goes, you tell my lazy sister to get her butt in the kitchen. And Jesus is like, Martha, Martha, Martha. Mary has chosen the better thing. Which is it? Which is it? Is it service or is it rest? Yes. Is it urgency or is it comfort? You know, there's a world that needs Jesus. God is is relentlessly pursuing people who are far from him and calls us into that pursuit. And there's an urgency because eternity is in the balance. Do we help people find and follow God with all urgency? Or do we sit at the feet of Jesus and worship him and rest in his presence? And the answer is, yes, there's a tension that we have to manage there. Is Jesus the lamb that was slain or is he the lion of Judah? Yes. When the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? He tells him, sell everything, give it to the poor and follow me. And then as Jesus is hanging on the cross, there's a thief next to him who's never done anything right in his life. All right, a little poetic license there, but not a good guy. And he says, Jesus, remember me. And Jesus is like, you're in. Which is it? Is it asking for grace? Or is it selling everything, giving it to the poor and following him? It's yes. There's a tension to manage. This is all through scripture. Is it free will or is it God's sovereignty? Yes. Is it grace or is it judgment? Yes. God is good with the tension. We are not. But guys, the truth is found in the tension. We want to resolve every tension. God wants us to learn to live in the tension, wrestle our way through the tension. When Christy and I first got married, I decided that rather than going to the gym, because I hate the gym, 
I would buy a Bowflex. That was the big popular home gym at the time. And so it has these, these rods that come up and you hook the hooks to it and, it and it pulls down. And as you pull these rods, they get tighter and tighter and tighter. They get more and more tension, right? And as, the more rods you put on it, the more tension it has on it, the more resistance and the stronger you get. Never worked out for me. Because what I've discovered is that unless those bars are under tension, I'm not getting stronger. And I never put those bars under tension. We like to live without tension. But guys, we like our nice little neat categories and to have everything settled and not. This side of heaven, not everything's going to be settled. There are things that are settled and we must hold on to those. But there are things that are not. And we must wrestle with those and live with that tension. Third reason I think Jesus did this is because he wants us to live with the end in mind. He put the end out in front of us. He never wants us to forget where we're going. Jesus is talking about end times, and it gives us perspective. It creates watchfulness. It reminds us what is ultimately important and what is ultimately true, that he is coming back. And, and we have a tendency to forget that and begin living for today. If I were to tell you that Jesus is coming back at 5 p.m. today, what would you do? Probably do some different things, right? Well, let me suggest that whatever that is, go ahead and do those things. We should be living as if Jesus is coming back today. You know, I think we would hold the people we love a little closer and tell them that we love them. I think we would probably make things right in relationships that are wrong. We would do the important things because he is coming back at some point. Fourth reason I think Jesus spends this time is he wants us to live as victors. He wants us to live as victors. Guys, we don't live for the victory of Christ. We live from the victory of Christ. And there's a big difference. It's not like we're fighting, fighting battles and wars and, 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 and helping people find and follow God and doing all the things we do so that we hope we win in the end. Jesus has already won. He is coming back victorious. He is coming back uh, and he is going to vanquish evil and he is going to be king and we win. And when you understand that, and as he paints this picture, we are able to relax. We are able to breathe. We're able to enjoy the ride. And when you do, it makes you so much more effective. When we're all tense and nervous and I wonder, well, you gotta, it all comes down to me. You end up being kind of awkward and not very fun to be around. But when you understand whether I win today or lose today, ultimately I win. You can be so much more winsome and fun and enjoy the ride. He wants us to live as victors. Fifth, he wants us to live faithfully. In verse 35, therefore keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. I think Jesus talked about end things because he wants us, to, and he talked about them in this way because he wants us to remain faithful, to not grow weary in doing good, to not lose hope that he's not come back yet, and not to get discouraged 
when there are bad days, but to be found faithful. So, as we look at this topic of eschatology in end times, let me ask you this. Are you living like that? And if you're not, let me invite you to do some business with God today. Lord Jesus, would you help us uh, internalize what's been said today, God, uh, to, to take your word and, and apply it to our lives. Help us to live for you. Lord, help us to live in, in that victory, Lord, as we navigate this life and help us to never forget that you are coming back. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us here at The Vineyard. It's our greatest desire to see you find and follow God, and we hope that this podcast has helped you do just that. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. Again, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.